Hello, and welcome to another episode of Echo Punks, a salon, a podcast, a weird group of people who like to discuss smart stuff. Today on our episode, we're going to talk about the commons, uh, in particular the tragedy of the commons, but perhaps also the redemption of the commons, or the state of the commons, or WTF is the commons, because perhaps some of us take for granted that the concept of the commons, the shared resources, the place in which we can all come together and be a part of each other, maybe that has become so foreign to us, so ancient that we don't even really know what it is. So for today's episode, uh, we're gonna throw to Sharita, who initially proposed the idea, but Jeanette and I were both like, heck yeah, let's talk about the commons. So I think this is gonna be, uh, while an interesting conversation, potentially a far reaching conversation, because I think the relevance of the commons in our contemporary society is artificial intelligence and generative media and the impact that it can and already is having both on the digital commons and I think by extension, physical commons. So Sharita, I'm curious as to what about the commons that you wanted to kind of talk about or that you also think about, given that it kind of led to you suggesting this, which makes me think that this is a subject that, you know, you kind of think about uh, 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 not so randomly or perhaps not so rarely. So I'm, I'm curious to hear sort of why you think this is something we should uh, cut into. Um, the reason that I brought it up is that when I specifically think about um, the internet, I've always thought of it as a form of commons. And I've always been supportive of various, um, various contexts that have happened on the internet where people have freely shared resources. So what I'm talking about um, would be open source, would be Wikipedia, would be um, various online communities. Um, and I've always been, you know, even I would say romantically um, interested in those kinds of forums. Um, at the same time, I've also looked at something called the tragedy of the commons. Um, this was um, a paper actually written in 1968 by somebody named Garrett Hardin. Um, and he wrote it really as a parable um, to look at what happens when individuals, selfish individuals, um, come to a shared resource and use up most of it um, and therefore leave the rest of the people who could share this resource not having enough of it. Now, um, one thing to remember about Garrett um, Hardin was he was also a eugenicist so that the parable he was making was really the parable of, um, well, the only way that we're going to make this commons work is if we have some control over population 
and some control over the population that uses the resource. And he made it a very deterministic argument because he really believed that the world was overpopulated and populated by the wrong people. I mean, he basically, he was a racist. So, um, and, and, and just, just to be contextual, this is obviously a very prevalent sentiment today. This is what's driving a lot of right-wing politics, right? It's, I would call it less racism now, more xenophobia, because it's not okay. just racism, it's homophobia, it's transphobia, it, it's, it's a fear of other, but you're articulating an argument that outside of the internet, it's very manifest in physical communities in North America, in Europe, and drives this notion that immigration is the cause of all of our problems, which yeah. is patently not true. But it is nonetheless an argument that is gaining a lot of ground politically amongst kind of right wing populist uh, movements. Sorry, go ahead. I'm going to say that the whole tragedy of, of the commons narrative directly relates to the neoliberal agenda. But I don't want to get that complex and that political. What I really want to talk about or to look at um, is um, the critiques of the tragedy of the commons, uh, specifically the most famous um, coming from the Ostroms, Vincent and Eleanor Ostrom. Eleanor won a Nobel Prize because her research really um, critiqued the tragedy of the commons and showed how with um, governance measures, with trust, with um, a great deal of communication, um, the tragedy of the commons was not inevitable. So she really challenged this deterministic argument. Um, but a lot of people don't remember that. What they remember or what they catch on to is the parable of the tragedy of the commons. So when it comes, when we look at the internet, um, the internet may not be a finite resource like um, the commons in the parable, which was a field where you had um, to limit the amount of grazing. You but, can graze a lot on the internet. Let me push back there, though, because okay. I, I want to keep today's discussion in the context of AI. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the internet is very finite, and, and we're really starting to push the limits of the internet's capacity. I say this both in an environmental sense, mm -hmm. that if you look at the environmental impact of cloud computing, of the cryptocurrency phenomena, it is a huge source of energy usage, of heat, of carbon. But further, all of that is currently being used by AI. Almost every AI service limits the amount of time you can use because not only is that computing expensive, it's scarce. So we are now running into a scenario in which what we thought of as the Internet commons being infinite, there is actually finite limits, which is the capacity of cloud computing and the capacity of the Internet, both for managing data and in processing that data. 
Sorry, please go ahead. Okay. Um, I think you jumped ahead a little bit. And I was going to say that, you know, the the beginning prevalent view was that, you know, it was a limitless resort, you know, resource. But what you touched on was the complexity of putting the internet within all the other ecosystems that we live in so that you can have a tragedy of the commons um, basically mapping across a lot of what are now called the new commons or a different way of looking at all the various things that we relate to. So um, the place where AI is the, you know, most common thing would be called, would be within something called the knowledge commons. Okay, so yes, it is now becoming uh, more finite. However, if we look to Eleanor um, Ostrom and some of the other people that have been critiquing the tragedy of the commons, um, there are ways around it. They're, they're not easy. Um, they, require, um, they require participation, active participation, which sometimes is not that prevalent when you're looking at the whole sphere of the internet and AI. So um, I guess what my wait problem... wait can can you roll that back? Explain that last sentence. Meaning, give me what you don't. The understand. participation vis-a-vis -vis AI. Okay, so a AI is not um, a level playing ground. Um, you have to have a certain amount of money, privilege, time, attention, knowledge, um, literacy to be able to use it well. So um, when it comes to AI and the tragedy of the commons, you need to have not just people who are playing with chat GPT or have the, the, the uh, literacy to play with it. You have to have the people who are affected by this play come in and discuss governance issues use issues, um, how we develop some kind of framework to allow this commons um, to grow. And, and this is, you know, uh, uh, this is in particular why I wanted you to elaborate, because the narrative of AI is, is quite the opposite. Yes. Right. They claim a level of accessibility. But to your point, it's superficial because you're not actually invited to participate in the governance. You're not actually yes. allowed to participate in the design. And, and this is where I will push back and say, I, I think this is why the critique of neoliberalism is important why the delusions of neoliberalism is important, right? Because the tragedy of the commons is on, on an ideological level, on a philosophical level, a conservative reaction to liberalism, right? And in our modern, our contemporary area is borderline a fascist reaction to neoliberalism, right? And what the Ostroms are, are suggesting, what we want to explore today is an alternative to both. 
right? That rejects the, the myths and delusions of liberalism, of neoliberalism, but doesn't resort to the xenophobia or authoritarianism that we are seeing in both politics uh, in terms of the xenophobia. And, and I feel the authoritarianism in AI, but Jeanette, you, you've got your hand up. So please jump in here and help, help us further explore what Sharita is offering so that we both get a sense of the critique of the tragedy of the commons. But I think more fundamentally, I'm not sure that we've yet fully discussed what the commons is. I think Sharita gave us a lot of great examples. But I think, to your point about literacy, I think it still remains a bit of a, an abstract concept for most people. Jeanette, please. Yeah, I actually wanted to add something to what Sharita was saying that I thought was relevant here. Um, it's interesting, other than the major compromising factor of Hardin being a white supremacist and really pursuing that agenda with this piece, the, the other thing that makes it flawed is all of his use cases are actually of open access pieces of land, not commons. And there, the, the, the distinction is this, that commons, and I think this might actually be Ostrom's definition, are three things. They're, it's the physical object or the resource, right, that is, is being shared. It's the people who share it. And then the third thing is the governance, right, the, the, the fact that it is managed, that sharing is managed. So the things he was talking about being swallowed up by hordes of people rushing in to claim their own piece of it, that was an, an open access piece of land. It's, it's no, it doesn't have in place the governance structure that is meant to prevent that from happening. And I think that's a critical distinction when we start talking about AI, because it seemed to me what you and Sharita were talking about was exactly this issue and, and the way that this is the moment where this whole question of where is the governance coming from and, um, and how is that going to be arranged is so critical. Do you still want me to talk about the field thing or, or, cause I mean, I am the farmer in the group, but. <laughs> if you have to ask, you should have already gotten into it. Okay. I, I just, just, I learned something else really interesting today that is sort of related to that. So the, the common metaphor, yeah, for commons is a shared piece of pasture or grazing land that ideally people can access in turn when it's, um, so that everybody benefits it from it, so that it's a public good. But I, I found out that in some counties in the United States, they have what's called a, a fence outlaw. So that rather than you fence in the property that you know is your private property and nobody else is supposed to come onto or use, the idea, the idea is the presumption is all the land is commons, and if you don't want people grazing their animals on your land, you need to fence them out. And I, I just thought that was a really interesting, I had never heard of that before, but I thought it was a kind of an interesting approach to agricultural land use. Well, and a different perspective really on the concept of private property versus shared property. And, you know, the, the I, I keep bringing AI into this because I feel that the current AI debate is missing some of the key issues. But But one of the issues that is relevant, but I don't think understood is copyright. Because yes. the other side of the commons uh, in, in our digital concept has been 
you know, what we can share. And copyright is usually the exception of that. And the Creative Commons movement was, of course, a huge cultural and political uh, and economic uh, uh, part of the internet because it created shared tools. It created shared resources. It created shared media. And what's interesting about AI is AI may be, I, I, I keep thinking about the comparison with Napster, that AI may finally be the, the force that destroys copyright or transforms copyright. And part of it has to do with the threat that AI currently poses to creators and publishers, you know, partly because AI on some level is a plagiarism machine. So you can use it to basically plagiarize any content that's, any been, that's ever been published anywhere. But then there's the argument as to whether AI content itself can be subject to copyright, because there's already been a number of preliminary rulings that suggest that the output of an AI does not itself deserve the protection of copyright. And that creates a whole new source of commons material. Right. That right now, if you look at Midjourney, which is the most advanced uh, image generator out there, every single image generated by any user of Midjourney is in the public domain. Anyone can see it. So you can watch in real time what other people are generating and then you can use the images that they are generating. Now, there is a top tier. If you pay an enterprise price, you can use a stealth mode, but no one really does that yet, right? Because they want the transparency. They want to be part of a community in which you're creating images. And the other example now is Suno, which was a tool I used yesterday to create a blues song sung by my dog. And similarly, all the content being created by all users is transparent. You can see in real time the other songs that people are generating and you can use their material. They can use yours. So you have this explosion of content being created that on the one hand, arguably is piracy because you're stealing copyright material. But on the other hand, is a tsunami of commons material. Stuff that people are not claiming copyright on, that they want others to remix, that they want others to learn in terms of how they're using these AI systems. So I think we're at a pivotal point in terms of how we've thought of the digital commons, where, you know, to use Sharita's example of Wikipedia, Wikipedia used to be a resource, right, written by thousands and thousands of human beings. Wikipedia is about is now already being swamped by GPT. Every chat, every knowledge uh, commons is being swamped by chat GPT. You know, I sent Merle a, a TikTok recently of someone who went to Amazon and put in a chat GPT error into Amazon and found dozens and dozens of products in which the product description was not the description of the item. It was the chat GPT error saying it couldn't generate the text. And whoever copied and pasted didn't realize that that error was there. So Merle, allow me to use this as an opportunity to bring you into the conversation because you're a creator, you're an artist, you're someone who's been using digital tools to make media your entire life. 
how do you feel about the fact that I made a song that wasn't that bad in 10 minutes last night? Do you feel pressure as a creator or is this a scenario in which creation is evolving and you're just going to start using these tools to make uh, 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 more and more content? So it's a two prong question. You know, what impact do you think AI is going to have on the commons? And what's your relationship to copyright as a creator? Is it something that you care about or are you excited about the explosion of material now available in the commons? Well, I think the issue of copyright is interesting because the people who are creating these models or uh, AI systems that are generating art or music based on copyrighted material don't want to then influence their algorithms with AI generated material. But I wonder if taking it that step further puts it even farther away from that copyright. And then it's the whole other realm. Like you've got the one step away where you're generating based on copyrighted material and therefore should that material be copyrighted? Is it, distinguishable which you know what it what is generating from in some cases yes because you can like see a watermark or whatever uh or an artist's name but you know it, the, it comes back to kind of poisoning the algorithm in terms of using the generated content um so i think that is a bit of the uh well what we're discussing with the tragedy of the commons where everyone's just putting out as much as they can, but also trying to protect themselves. And it's a bit backwards because how, how are they trying to protect themselves? What do you mean by that? Well, I think in my experience, most people don't want to train their generation algorithms on AI generated content because this is very true of AI algorithms. If you put in garbage, you get garbage out. And so where some AI generated content is good and getting better. A lot of the stuff thus far has been garbage. And so training your models on that is going to produce more garbage. So it isn't just, it ends up with a bunch of garbage everywhere and, you know, and with more human labor to actually sort out what's good. I think in terms of. Which strikes me as a tragedy of the comments argument. Go ahead, right. continue. Well, I think it does come back to governance. Um, I, I think that the internet itself, aside from AI, um, is not wholly accessible to everyone and isn't this grand commons. Um, you still have to pay for your devices to access the internet, your, um, your internet service provider. So while it is uh, becoming more and more accessible, I think, around the world, it's not accessible to every human on the planet. And there's also certainly countries where it's quite restricted. And there is a model of governance that is quite authoritarian. And so that is not the commons as we've described it. Um, that said, and, and in, to your point, you know, it, it is if there's guardrails in the AI, if the AI prevents you from creating certain kind of media, is that by definition the commons, if the people, if not themselves, set those guardrails, if those guardrails are arbitrary in terms of how they've been installed? Right, because then it's just someone else's bias 
imposed upon what you can create with their tools. That said, the open source version, so Stable Diffusion, the open source image generator, still has its limitations insofar as it's been shown to reproduce stereotypical representations of groups of people um, because of the content that's available for training and you know who's doing the training and their biases are also embedded in that. And so I'm sure at some point we'll get, and we do already have like a, a much more primitive text but generator. I a, a quick a quick anecdote you know the i wrote for our living with animals i wrote a piece about uh you know families with dogs and i specifically wanted a black family with dogs and i wanted it to be a photo but it couldn't do a photo because it didn't have in its library images of black families happy with children with dogs so it ended up being even though i requested a photo it ended up being an illustration because right. it didn't have the memory to be able to do that now before you end i'm also going to ask you since this is sophie's uh, our first time joining us Merle, i want you to segue to sophie and bring her into the conversation so please conclude with your marks but then in doing so set sophie up to join in well what i was thinking of is and this is less to do with AI, but somewhat. Our experience on Facebook last night, um, and Sophie can speak to you know, her personal experience posting on our local town Facebook group, but the response was not ideal, whereas, Jesse, I know you've had a more positive response posting AI-generated content. Um, and so, Sophie, I think, you don't necessarily post on Facebook a lot. I definitely don't. But uh, how do you see the tragedy of the commons sort of playing into the experience we had with, uh, you know, posting on the local Facebook group last night? Well, essentially what we were doing there was we were posting about um, putting up posters in our local town uh, as a way of getting around rules on the Facebook group about posting about rehoming dogs and so it was a very like innocuous post that immediately got a lot of engagement and it was a lot of like this is spam whatever um just a lot of quick engagement that didn't make a lot of sense but as Merle said then Jesse will put up full things that are completely generated and people here as we've been speaking about literacy like do not have any idea that that could even factor in. I myself, until recently, wouldn't have picked up on that either because it's just not, it's not something that I've found a lot of interest in until recently. So I don't have a lot of experience with it myself, but I come from a communications and media background. And when we're talking about the comments, I did projects in school five years ago with professors about the creative commons and i wonder how they're teaching this now because mm -hmm. we learned about kind of facebook's impact and most of what we learned about was kind of surveillance and all this kind of stuff and now there are these greater forces maybe even bigger than what we were worried about initially that are quickly developing and like how are they teaching students about this um I again, I'm not super familiar with all of it yet, especially kind of the tragedy of the commons in relation to AI. But 
that's kind of my question and interest is like, what what are we doing now with this? Well, it seemed like the comments we were getting were a lot of people just speaking for their own personal interest. Like no one actually answered yeah. the question you had put out there. It was all just people essentially shit posting and or wanting to have their opinion heard, yeah. which I think is another way well, that and, and, and the paradox the, the paradox yeah. was people That's were true. thinking that it was a scam because you were getting attention and people were then using the fact that you were getting attention to get attention for themselves. And fundamentally, your post was not only a legitimate question, it was a legitimate focus on the local community asking a local question versus I'm posting AI content that sentimental has nothing really to do with the local community and people are just eating it up and loving it. And it's technically the scam. Jeanette, and, you, you raised And you're your not hand. getting reported. Like I got reported taken and taken down. Quite the opposite. I got promoted yeah. to top contributor Right. Because I'm kind of, you know, when in Rome, I'm doing the yeah. Facebook thing. And, and that's kind of the paradox. Jeanette, go ahead. I just want to make explicit some things that I think are implicit in what you're describing here and then throw to Sharita for, a, I think, a more informed discussion of what comes next. So just to clarify, the sort of free for all melee that you're describing here happening with this Facebook post really kind of foregrounds um, the what I see as being a pretty direct line with Hardin's vision of a commons, which, like I said, is not actually a commons, but an open area that is openly accessible, being overrun by greedy individuals who ruin it because they just want to do their self-interested thing and screw everybody else. There's a clear line, I think, between that and the sort of the founding myths of liberalism. So I'm talking about Locke's ideas about what happens in the state of nature and how property is claimed, is created because you mix your labor with it. Or Hobbes's vision of uh, just total chaos, right? Like life is nasty, brutish, and short, unless you have some kind of authoritarian ruler who's kind of just keeping the lid on things. Th these seem to be to be all kind of versions of the same cautionary tale that people are jerks and if you give the if the, we can't have nice things because they're just going to ruin them and and that you know that sort of common sense view undergirds most of neoliberalism we got to just privatize it because everyone's just going to screw it up if we try to share now of course there are all kinds of alternatives to that that neoliberalism doesn't necessarily want you to imagine but this is exactly what the Ostroms were getting at and fleshed out. And, and Sharita, I would love to hear you kind of expand upon that because I know you have so much more familiarity with, with that aspect. Um, I, the familiarity I have with that aspect um, really is based on community development um, happening in smaller communities um, in the real world. Um, and I think it's much easier to develop some kind of uh, governance, or I would just say mutual accountability 
which is a form of governments, governance, um, when you're dealing with a smaller group, something that um, people can feed into and see how it directly applies to them and how they directly relate to somebody else. It, it jumps to a, a totally different um, way of doing things when you have more people, more contexts. Um, it becomes inc increasingly complex. Um, as everybody was talking, I was thinking back to um, when a new movement happened in academe and what that new movement was, was open access. And what happened to various academic journals and various academics when open access began to take off? Um, the first thing that happened was that everybody said, well, if you have open access, it's not peer reviewed, it's not science, it's, you know, it's woo woo land, you don't want to do that. And then what happened was that open access became peer reviewed. And then it was, well, some people pay for their, and it went on and on and on. I'm not absolutely sure where open access is in terms of scientific development right now, but I can tell you what the, the kinds of things that it generated that are really important for humankind. And one of those things was mapping the genome. You wouldn't have had mapping the genome if you didn't have some form of open access science. Okay, so let's. That kind bring of brings us back to eugenics in, in an well, indirect way. But sorry, go ahead, continue. Yes, yes. Um, there's lots of complexity here. There is no silver bullet, right? It's it's going to have to be looked at specifically. I think in terms of context. Now, when it comes to AI, who should be involved? in this, um, in this uh, delaying or in this uh, manufacturing of not a tragedy of the commons? Who should be involved? That's the first question I throw out. Well, and, and I think, you know, you, you don't even have to contextualize that question. I think part of the, the, the mythology of AI is the way that it presents a, a veneer of accessibility, mm -hmm. right? A, a, a sense that anyone can use ChatGPT to write their high school essay. Anyone can use, you know, a mid-journey or stable diffusion to create really interesting art. But I, I think... You know, the, the the larger inclusivity question, like, you know, I, I wrote a paper recently about inclusive futurism. Mm -hmm. And 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 I think that was a way easier if I were to try to write something on inclusive A.I. I, 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 I it, it it wouldn't end mm -hmm. like like it, it is such an exclusionary space to begin with. That, that I think that the question even before your question is, how do we get people to the literacy level that they could? 
be involved in AI, that they could use AI critically, let alone, I think your larger provocation is, how can they be in, at the table of the governance of AI mm -hmm. to decide what AI should do and should not do, to decide how fast or how slow AI should be developed, or even whether we should just not use AI the way that some people think that we should not have nuclear weapons. Right. And that nuclear weapons are something that should fundamentally not exist. That, that that's an extreme argument. But there are people making that argument about AI. Right. Like it is part of the larger public discourse. So, you know, Merley, why don't I throw to you uh, how to, to go back to Sharita's question. Right. But to flip it on its ear. How would we get more people involved in the governance of AI? And I'll throw this to you with an extra curveball. I think, Jeanette, Sharita, correct me if you think I'm wrong. I think the only alternative governance system that has emerged on the Internet to date is Bitcoin and blockchain. And it's not a good one. Yeah. But they are offering it as one. And the only reason that Bitcoin continues to go up in price is because there is a large number of people who believe that it will be the governance system of AI and of the Internet. So, Merle, do you have thoughts on your future and the extent to which you want to be involved in the governance of AI or you have ways in which as a designer you could enable other people to be involved in the governance of AI? I mean, I have an investment in so far as I would like to benefit from using those tools, but I think I also have an investment in their governance uh, in as far as it affects the people I care about. So I think about school-age children and you know, what are school-aged children being taught about the internet, let alone Bitcoin, blockchain, or AI? And I, I, I would think not much, at least in school. I think my little brothers learn about things from YouTube and Fortnite and, you know, other platforms like that, Roblox. Um, what, what are those platforms that aren't, you know, part of the government like the education system, what are they teaching and how can we create uh, more systems either in the public sphere, in the education system or externally that educate people about AI tools and AI scams and, you know, copyright and AI <laughs> and, you know, how and plagiarism, like this is a big one that has come up in uh, post-secondary education. Uh, my dad, who's an English teacher and is on a sabbatical, was saying how he's really glad that he's not teaching this year because this is the year of chat GPT where English majors are going to be using chat GPT to write their assignments. And how does the university cope with that? Hey, let's let's not pick on English majors. All students are going to be doing it, right? Every class, sure. every subject. Sure. I actually think English majors are going to have a harder time getting away with it. Yes. Because if you're and not an English major, depending on their skill, if they're sure. a good English major, they'll get away with it. Right. But if you're if you're a bad English major, then you know it's excusable to have bad writing potentially. Um, so yeah, how how do we build? The, the teaching into at least post-secondary, if not, you know, 
high school and elementary school so that people are at least aware of these things and have that literacy, um, if not are able to use it to the advantage of the commons. Well, okay, allow me then to, to flip that argument on its head and, and I'll throw this to you, Murley, and then you can decide who to throw it to next. But what if, to go to Sharita's point, what if literacy only works if it's universal versus if literacy is not universal, it can be weaponized? Mm -hmm. Right. In the sense that if we assume that AI is going to be exclusive, that it's only going to be available to an elite and the literacy we foster around AI will be used by that elite to manipulate people who do not have access to it, whether they have the literacy or not. Mm -hmm. Right. And and which is different than, say, critical literacy of knowing that it's AI. But if you know that the dictator's a dictator, does that stop? that person's power, right? Is knowledge alone power or do you actually need some other context? So again, I'm curious to bring it back to the notion of universality, of accessibility. How do we ensure that literacy itself doesn't become a weapon, but is something that is uh, available to all insofar as they're then available to use AI against AI? Like to go back to your school scenario, Right. Why should we deny students from using AI when we know that some of them will effectively, some of them will be smart enough to use it without de being detected? Right. Mm -hmm. Why should we punish everyone else when we know that there's going to be some who are going to get away with it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it, it sort of comes back to your analogy with the nuclear weapons. There's only certain world powers which possess that capability. So. I think the idea of universality is a bit of a fallacy because there's always going to be people, you know, whether newborns or uh, underprivileged people who don't have access and literacy in those areas. Um, I'm actually going to throw to Sophie because I think she's expressed some concern about uh, how this affects writers. Sophie's a writer and the idea that a uh, language model can replace writers is a daunting one. But, you know, how much merit there is to that, how that will actually play out, I'm not sure. But Sophie, maybe you can speak on sort of some of those concerns and how you see that affecting your career as a writer and your experience and motivation to do writing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen there, but I look at like people publishing their writing in general has always been an issue of, of getting distribution and getting your views and your stories out there. And now people can take what's out there and manipulate it using AI and shoot it right back out there. So again, with especially if there's a section of people, people that have, have more easy access, have an advantage here. Um, that just keeps uh, pushing forward that whole issue of, of certain writers just maybe not wanting to get involved or maybe just not being able to actually have their work reach people. Like right now I'm looking for work and I'm looking at communications jobs and stuff like that and thinking to myself, like how is AI going to play into these types of things, whether it's like 
policy copy editing, like federal jobs or content creation or marketing strategy, like so much of this stuff can now can now be done be done by these tools. So like what well, to how that do we point, navigate? At I, what I'm point do we sure. see AI tools being in the job description for a literacy that you're required to have for you know, various types of jobs. Communications, I think, would be a big one. Honestly, I think pretty soon, considering that LinkedIn's prompting me to use ChatGPT to generate my cover letters to the hiring managers. I think well, we're yeah. kind of at that point. And, and conversely, I think if you find someone hiring a writer who doesn't know about ChatGPT, yeah. well, that's definitely a job to apply for because there's an asymmetry there that you could, as the worker, take advantage of uh, in a way that I think would be totally ethical. Now, mm. Jeanette, you and Sharita both uh, had your hands up. Uh, uh, Jeanette, you want to jump in first and then you'll throw to Sharita? Excellent. Yeah, I sort of want to go back actually and address uh, two different issues. I, I think it's interesting that both Merle and Sophie separately have brought up the figure of the artist and the mm -hmm. crisis of value around what artists do. Because I really want to talk about how I think value and how we determine value is sort of central to a lot of the questions we're addressing here. But I want to take a quick detour to this story about the year of chat GPT as a former English professor and teacher. I think that this is an, a wonderful opportunity to finally blow apart traditional assessment practices, which I think are just stupid, frankly. Um, and maybe we'll finally get rid of the 10-page essay this way as an assessment tool, because I, I feel like we're well past that being functional in any way. And this might be finally the thing that breaks it. So I, just, I had to throw that in there. But to go back, you know, this is eco-punks. I think we got to talk about ecosystems and the larger ecosystem for so much of what we're discussing here is values and how we determine what has value. What kind of value does an artist bring with their work? If it's, if you know, the, the, the underlying theme of so much of this is while power is connected to money in, in today's world. And so, value is often conceptualized purely in terms of money and these fights over resources and what has value and what doesn't have value is often connected again to its monetary value maybe we need to be thinking about value in completely different ways maybe that's the overhaul that has to happen so that artists are protected um, and do have status quite apart from being able to sell copies of their work and who owns the right, because remember, copyright is all about publishers, not artists. Who owns the right to, to sell copies of their work it becomes less relevant if we are thinking about the value of what artists do differently. Mm -hmm. You were well, supposed to throw to Sharita there, Jim. Okay. I just want to jump in there. NFTs have been kind of NFTs. suggested as, you know, this way to protect artists by, you know, having the the side well, of like, who, this is who owns that but then nfts there's no reason they can't be involved in a, a you know a, a trained model like they're publicly available in as far as the the ai cares right so what's the point so let me jump in um two things um the first thing is um 
there are times that I contemplate um, teaching next year. Um, and I realize that if I were to teach next year in my specialty, which is, you know, very broadly cyber literacy, um, I would need to reorganize my course um, to address AI. And how would I address AI or how do I um, deal with AI in the academic um, environment? I basically um, would be teaching people or having people learn. Teaching is the wrong thing. I, I rarely teach. Uh, but giving people the opportunity to experiment with AI and learn what that means for them. And that's really the literacy that we need to have. At the same time, I'm also thinking that a good part of the course would be looking at um, what kind of ethics do we need in this age of AI or in this age of um, having as much access as we can for the population in this communication space? And so if I were to do that, the two things I would really look at would be um, how to use AI to learn. I. Uh, I I, I think that ethics piece is key because yeah. I, I feel right now the conversation in, in AI around ethics is a control exercise. It's okay. not about yeah. ethics. It's not yeah. about participation. You know, I mean, I, I always felt university ethics was an exercise in covering your ass, mm -hmm. right? And making sure that the institution is not somehow liable. It's not actually about the ethics of research. And right now, AI ethics, for the most part, is about reputation control of the companies that are doing this and of the people, the investors who are backing it versus what I love about your vision, Sharita, is it's a much more uh, adversarial ethics, mm -hmm. um, subjective ethics. I think by empowering, because I think most people not only feel excluded from AI ethics debates, they disqualify themselves. Right. Like they say, oh, I'm not an expert. Right. Or, oh, I know nothing about AI. Right. When the opposite is true. Right. They should be participating in the ethical discussions because to Murley's point, they will be subject to this technology. They are already subject to this technology. So the larger question, which Jeanette, I kind of want you to jump in on. And, and I'd very much be interested to hear uh, Murley, Sophie and Charita also uh, uh uh, discuss is how do we have those ethical discussions, right? How do we have uh, 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 a punk ethical AI discussions that allow people to be irreverent, that allow people to be disobedient when it comes to those ethics? Because I think the other problem with most ethical debates is they're conformist. Everyone is trying to reach a consensus when instead those ethical debates would be far more interesting if you got points for role playing. If you got points for just making arguments to help flesh out the ethics, because for myself, I previously was abstaining from using ChatGPT and other tools primarily because of the environmental impact. 
right? I felt quite uh, uh, correctly that using these tools uses a tremendous amount of energy. And I, I want to limit the amount of energy that I use and therefore didn't want to use uh, these tools for that purpose. But then I had a radical shift in my ethics once I realized that these tools can quite likely kill copyright and that they can be used for piracy. They can be used for propaganda. They can be used to dramatically change the ethical debate. And that's when I felt the moral imperative to use them. Right. To try to demonstrate different ways of using them that fleshed out the debate. And I'm not saying that I'm right. Next week, I could have a completely different position. But the point is, ethics should be about centering usage in a larger political economic context. And I think most people don't do that. They're not empowered to do that. So, Jeanette, yeah. how? Can we engage that? How can we encourage people to think of AI ethics in not only a creative way, an adversarial way, a subjective way, but a personally empowering way that when they think of AI ethics, they are rising to Sharita's argument that they are participating in the governance of AI. And that is their democratic responsibility to think of ethics, not as something that other people impose upon them, but something that they come up with based on their values and their principles. Well, I want to go back to something Sharita mentioned earlier on, because I think the, the, the possible approaches are not new. They've been used elsewhere, just maybe not in the AI space. But when Sharita talked about small groups and how uh, mutual accountability works best in small groups, I think the kinds of conversations you're talking about, Jesse, where people feel the freedom to be irreverent, to that, that they don't have to drive relentlessly towards some kind of broad, one-size-fits-all consensus, that happens best in small groups. Now, of course, we're gonna talk about this issue of scale because this is, this is not a small group, but what's wrong with having a decentralized network of small groups all tackling this same issue and kind of hacking it out on their own and then communicating with other groups that have come to their own conclusions or have had their own discussions about this. I, th I think that model has worked in many other contexts um, and there's no reason that it couldn't be applied here where there's uh, that discretion happens on the ground and then we take it to sort of progressively uh, larger scales. Anyway, th that's kind of where I'm thinking at the moment. Merle? I, I agree that decentralizing it and, and having, you know, smaller units that then come together as a whole um, would give you like the diversity and, and variety that you'd need to cover a wide spectrum of the potential ethical issues. Um, I think that that could just end up with, you know, various models of ethical governance, which get implemented in different places at different times. Uh, which isn't to say that's a bad thing. Like, I think having that happen and then seeing the outcome is probably one of the best ways to learn. Uh, but that there would still be, there's not going to be one unified ethical code of AI. Um, there's always going to be different 
use cases, different groups, and um, sort of applications that uh, you know one ethical code might be more applicable for. Sophie. Yeah, I think that just with technology in general, people's opinions vary so much about what is suitable and, and what is ethical. And so with this new-ish technology on the rise, like I look back at that Facebook discussion I had last night and I was abiding by the quote unquote ethics of the group and I got taken down for really no reason. Um, so I think that like, I don't know a lot about this topic and I think that communicating about it in small groups and especially on the ethics side is very important. But then I wonder when those small groups meet, like just the difference of opinion, how that can, as you both have said, really kind of uh, how people come together and how ultimately the louder group or the more privileged group will win out. Sharita, last thoughts? Um, there are many different types of values and ethics. Um, some of them are driven by our Western thinking, but many are driven outside of our Western thinking. Um, there is something called the ethics of care, which is a much more feminist model of looking at ethics. There's all these things. Um, what I'm saying is that discussions have to happen. And perhaps as an educator, I am both um, privileged to engage in those discussions, but I also use my power to make those discussions happen. Um, and from an ethical point of view, I'm comfortable with that. So how to, you know, get it to go to scale? I'm not sure. Well, I, I think the each one teach one model is, yes. is how that goes to scale. Yes. Um, you know, I, I'll end by sort of saying part of what I'm trying to do in using AI is foster a kind of sense of literacy in that the type of stuff that I'm creating is both, you know, absurd, but at the same time tries to give people a sense of what's possible. I mean, for example, here, right, these are different images that I'm having generate for an article talking about interspecies friendships. <laughs> Right. And what's interesting when you compare the different derivative models is you start seeing the biases, right? Like yeah. clearly the goat and the horse are dogs. Right. And it, it's taking a photo of three dogs and trying to turn the dogs into a goat and a horse. This is a little closer, but even then this goat is more sheepdog. Right. So it's interesting to play with these tools right and identify kind of where the biases are under underlying it which to your point Sharita, around education mm -hmm. right i sort of see as immersive experiences mm -hmm. right that you have to play with these tools and mess around with these tools to sort of see what they come up with like this is absurd right the again the way it's trying to you know take photos of dogs here's one with two necks or two heads, right? It's like the two-headed hydra. So it is interesting to sort of see the results that it comes up with. 
anyway, I digress, but it's an interesting conversation. I'm glad that we did not completely stay in the tragedy of the commons, but uh, fundamentally got into larger territory, especially around uh, governance and ethics. So thank you, Sharita, for suggesting the topic. Thank you, Sophie, Merle, Jeanette. I think this has been a really interesting conversation. And I encourage everyone to check us out again as we delve further into the ethics of AI and uh, uh, the future of the commons in an increasingly ecologically conscious society. Thanks again, everybody. Bye.